are now going to do a partner loss panel. I'm looking forward to this panel. They've all walked the walk and talked the talk. So thank you for being here today. I will introduce them. Abel Keel will be our moderator and he will be joined by Michelle Neff Hernandez and Jill Johnson Young. Abel is a widower, a relationship coach and author of six books and offers valuable advice through the Dating a Widower YouTube channel. Welcome, Abel. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks, Gloria. Great to see you, Abel. Joining Abel is Michelle Neff Hernandez. She is the CEO of Soaring Spirits International and author of Different After You, Rediscovering Yourself After Grief or Trauma. Her organization provides global peer support for widowed individuals. And I know she was a finalist for the CNN Heroes Award. I remember she came to New York for it. So uh, she is a rock star. Um, and then we have another rock star here. They all are Jill Johnson Young. Jill is a licensed clinical social worker, CEO of Central Counseling Services in Riverside, California, and the author of numerous grief books. So welcome, everyone. Hi, Abel. Wonderful to be with you guys today. Um, thank you, Open to Hope, for having us. Um, as you said, my name is Michelle Neff Hernandez. My husband, Philip, died 18 years ago in a cycling accident. And I am Jill Johnson Young, and my first wife, Linda, died in April of 2010 as a result of pulmonary fibrosis that was brought on by treatment for breast cancer 10 years before that. And my second wife, Casper, died in 2013 from Lewy body dementia, which is what caused Robin Williams to take his life. And then my uh, late wife, Krista, died in 2001, and the cause of death was uh, suicide. So a lot of varied experiences here. Um, so one thing um, I think, you know, I think we can all relate to is after you lose a spouse, um, there's like a void in your life. There's some emptiness in your life. Uh, so Jill, let's start with you. What are some ways that you rediscovered a sense of purpose and maybe some uh, direction in your life after losing, I guess, in your case, two, two spouses? <laughs> uh, you know, having three teenage daughters really helped because you have to have some direction when you are being pulled six ways from Sunday by children. Um, and they needed attention. And when my second wife, when my first wife was dying, we'd just taken placement of our middle child who was just turning 16 from LA County foster care. And when my second wife died, the kids were just a little bit more mature, but they, they all were then in the middle of graduating from different places. So I was able to, in the middle of all that, change careers. I left working for the county as a social worker and moved back to hospital hospice and then eventually moved to opening a private practice. And then I decided that there needed to be more discussion about grief and real discussion about grief, not about stages and not about grief has to last forever and you're always going to feel bad. And so I started writing books and hit the speaking stage. And Michelle, what are some things that, uh, that uh, you did? I think the key question um, that I struggled with early in my widowhood was, what do I do with myself now? Um, and for me, I think that as widowed people, that's one of the key questions that we have to answer. And so I spent a good amount of time testing things that I used to love um, and determining whether some of the things Phil and I were very active and a lot of the hobbies that I had at the time we shared. And so, you know, sometimes when you're in a in a partnership, 
um, you will lend to things that your partner loves to do. And maybe you also learn to love to do them, but maybe that wouldn't be your primary choice if, if you were making a choice just for yourself. And so I sort of started revisiting some of the things. Um, as I said, my husband died in a cycling accident and we used to ride together a lot. We rode um, road bikes and mountain bikes. And frankly, I never loved it. I loved doing it with him. And so there was a, a significant amount of, you know, questioning for myself was, you know, am I going to keep riding bikes? Is this something I still want to do? And so giving myself the freedom to answer that for myself rather than feeling tied to the answer that I would have had were he alive or even assuming that he might want me to still do some of the things that we did. Um, I, that was a really important part of my own process was really just starting to to give myself the freedom to answer questions for myself. And, and you know, while that was both difficult, it was also really important for me. So, so yeah, so one of the things it seems to be is, uh, um, is, is stay busy and try to, and try to, uh, to uh, figure out, I guess, you know, what is your new path going to be? Um, I know for me, um, you know, for me, I didn't have, I didn't have any uh, uh, children at the time. So to me, it was like, I was kind of throwing myself into work for better or worse. Um, um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things I see in a lot of my clients is the worst thing they can do is sit around and do nothing. Right. You know, you, you, you kind of lost the sense of purpose and doing nothing, um, I think is, is, is probably not healthy. So, um, so, so Michelle, you talked about, you know, you know, thinking about cycling and other things, what are some ways that, you know, that you were able to discover joy and happiness and bring that back into your life? I, I totally agree with you that, being able to add things into your life and and try not to isolate yourself entirely is an important part of making your way forward. And I learned that I needed to make space for my grief also. And so there were times when the you know grief was calling me; it needed some attention. And being willing to make space for that meant that I had to also learn to make space for joy. And I and on frankly for me that was harder. It was easier to to lean into the grief feelings because they were so present and they were so big. And joy felt a little scarier for me personally because I thought, you know, I, I had joy and the, the likelihood of it falling apart again, um, you know, is it was always present. We're human. So people that we love and, you know, even our fur animals um, ha are, are going to die at some point. And so sort of wrestling with that for me meant really allowing joy to sit beside grief and not having to choose between them, but rather make space for both of them. And when I could make space for grief, then it was like, okay, well, then I'm going to do some things that bring me joy. And, you know, as Jill said, I, um, she had kids that needed her attention. I had kids that needed mine as well. And sometimes that brought joy. And sometimes that brought an additional layer of stress because their grief was its own thing. Right. But, um, but in addition to that, I tried to, again, when we come back to what did I do, I, we used to run together and I loved running. And so I allowed myself to just like make that my own and that did bring me some joy. And so it was like, I like to say just like one small thing at a time, coffee. I love coffee. So coffee brought me joy. Like it doesn't have to be big joy. It can be, yes, cheers, chill. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have to be big joy. It can be small joy. You can start with something small and then allow that space for um, just a minute of feeling like, okay, um, I'm actually feeling really content with my coffee right now. I think there's also that setting boundaries piece so that we can decide when we're going to do those things and not have other people 
especially people who have not walked this walk, try to tell us how to, how much to, how often to, right? The, the two months after my first wife died, we had a sweet 16 and a prom and a military ball and a tennis award thing. And so we needed to do those things. And that was what Linda would have wanted, truly. She actually left a list and I finished the list, damn it. But um, you you have to do those things. And so you have to allow others around you to have joy and to also have their space for grief. But you have to set boundaries so you can do it on your terms. So just, so Jill, what's something specific that you can think of as well that brought you happiness? Was it Was it checking things off the list? Was it, you know doing things like this, what's something specific that brought you happiness? I went back to running uh, like Michelle and I, I did that for a number of years. I'm not a fast runner. I'm the one that doing a 10K, people are like, oh, your pace is so certain that I can use you to pace and do wind sprints and then wait for you. Like I am, I am the turtle who always finishes, but that um, gave me extra headspace and, and room to clear out. Um, and then in the last 10 years, my third wife and I have started um, collecting a herd of antique poodles who were going to be put to sleep at the shelters. And so we're, we're sort of poodle hospice and it brings great joy to go outside and play with the dogs every day and to see them getting a happy end of life. I love that. And I love the theme of uh, uh, running, by the way. That's something I did as well. I think it's just exercise in general. It doesn't have to be running, but I think exercise and doing something uh, physically is also good for your grief and good mentally. Um, it's also the way we can get into this later, but it's, it is also the way I actually ended up bonding with my, with my second wife, uh, was through, uh, running. So getting, you know, running to kind of get the grief out kind of also helped me, um, bond later on. Uh, but, uh, I guess the other thing I'd add that there's at least something that brought me joy and happiness as well was, uh, serving others. And I think that's something that we've seen here, you know, you know, uh, through the different We're activities. doing it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because sometimes, you know, when you suffer loss, I think there's an ability just to kind of focus in like, like nobody, you know, that, you know, that I'm going through the worst possible thing ever. And that's not to, to, uh, diminish what it is that we're going through. Right. You know, it is painful. It is hard, but other people are also, they have their own trials and own, and own struggles. And I think something that helped me was, you know, maybe it wasn't the same kind of trial or struggle, but going out there, like, you know, I, I lived in a neighborhood at the time that had a bunch of old people and they need to help with lawns. They need to help with, with uh, different things. And just going out there and just being able to help somebody, you know, and seeing, Hey, you know what, they're, you know, they're uh, struggling with things too. I think for, at least for me, brought me a lot of joy and happiness. Um, so, um, so again, you know, we, you know, we talked about how widowed people feel isolated um, or they can feel alone. Uh, so Jill, let's start with you. Uh, what role, if any, did support systems such as friends or family or support groups play in your process of moving forward? You know, what I found like many of my clients was that support groups tended to not be positivity oriented. And I I couldn't tolerate the ones where there was any kind of need to keep you in a space of grief. Um, and I'm kind of unique because my first wife actually told me to marry my second wife. And so, um, and she was her hospice nurse. So I transitioned from Linda's death to a space of grief and process and over to Casper. So it wasn't like most people experience. I will, and I had time to prepare for my losses. Both my wives were ill. Both of you had sudden losses. Um, but I found that 
a smaller support system worked well for me because a lot of folks were not comfy with Jill dating. That, that was on the, the no list. That, that's the bad widow list on the widow rules. And so I had to make my support group smaller but mightier. And I found online um, the uh, some of the widow groups were really helpful. Um, and in particular, there's some lesbian support, widow support groups that were helpful um, because the dynamics are somewhat different. Um, and then I have a small group of girlfriends that I have known since I was six years old. And we get together every three months and they were stupendous. Lean in and ask for help. Great. Uh, uh, Michelle, how about you? What kind of, uh, how did people or support groups help you kind of move forward? If if they did. <laughs> uh, I really love, I had a, I have an amazing family um, and they, and, and I had a great network of friends. And one of the things that I, I find interesting is that despite all of that support, and I was very well supported, I know that that's not the case for every widowed person. Many people really struggle with a, a lack of support. Um, I was fortunate not to be in that situation. And yet what I really wanted was to speak to other widowed people. And mm -hmm. so the, you know, the, what I kept seeking was because literally all of my friends and family were looking at me like, well, we don't know what's normal. And I was like, I don't know what's normal. Nobody knows what's normal. And of course we come to learn that what's normal for each one of us is different. And that this is an experience that's so personal and also universal that we can really benefit from, as you mentioned earlier, Abel, having perspective and so what having a community like soaring spirits is which is what drove me to, to to really found soaring spirits and create this space was that i wanted the access to other widowed people so that i could better understand at least put myself in the scope right so if if this is normal and this is normal and i'm somewhere in the middle like there's so many different ways to make your way through the experience of the death of your person and meeting other people who were doing that at the same time was one of the most meaningful things that I did in my grief. It, it made all the difference, even as it sat beside the wonderful support that I had around me, the people who were actually walking it at the same time um, really, really made a difference for me. Well, yeah, so I'll go, I think I'm more on the spectrum. I didn't have a, a, a support network, not that I didn't have people that didn't want to support me, but you know, again, I was in my twenties, so I was really young. And I think, you know, the dynamic was a little bit different. And I think being a guy, the dynamics a little bit uh, different too, is that, you know, you know, the, you know, the uh, friendships, the relationships, I think that, that widowers have versus widows is a little bit different. They typically don't have as many close friendships. They usually, um, you know, if, if they have a support network, it's maybe um, family or extended family, but they really don't have friendships that they can go to. And I, I can remember, you know, like you were saying, Michelle, I wanted somebody who was widowed who I could talk to, you know, and, you know, I, again, you know, before social media and the internet wasn't very big. So I, you know, I was kind of floating out there. Um, and so, you know, but I did, I remember that desire of wanting to talk to somebody who was widowed who had kind of gone through this just to tell me, hey, you know, it's going to be okay. You can do this. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think I ended up doing it, but it was, uh, uh I think I think for me it was a lot of just doing it on my own and and figuring things out and again I think I had friends and family that were there but I think how could they support me and I and to be honest I really didn't know what to tell them either it's like it's like how can we support you and I'm 
like I got no idea at this point. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Uh, and especially so let's I, I think one thing we have in common um, is that we've all you know, we've all moved forward with different relationships. Uh, which is not something that every widowed person does, uh, but maybe uh, uh, Michelle, what's something? Um, how maybe you could talk just briefly? How did you know you were ready to date again? And what's uh, maybe one thing you wish you would have done differently in the dating process? I, when my husband died, I was thirty-five. He was thirty-nine, and so I, I knew from an early time that I did not want to spend my life, the rest of my life not being partnered. I really, I loved being married and I knew that I wanted the opportunity to, to create a life with someone else. The thing that I had no idea about was when or how that could happen because I, I couldn't imagine it and I couldn't even really see a way, a path through at that point. Um, it, for me, and again, I think it's so important to reiterate over and over again for anyone, for our audience today that um, this happens for all at all different times for different widowed people. Everyone is ready when they're ready or not ready when they're not ready. And there is no right time. So you, you know, I think the hardest thing for me in grief was that my self assurance, you know, my ability to like tap into my inner voice was clouded by all the grief noise, you know, so there's a lot of grief noise going on and being able to really hone in on what I needed and what I wanted and be able to trust myself um, I think that if there's anything I would change, it would be, it would be just allowing myself to know that I was the person who was going to decide when the best time was. Um, because as a younger widowed person, I don't know if, if you both experienced this, but I got a significant amount of pressure to start dating. When was I going to start dating? You know, how, you know, like how long was I going to go on in this grief? And, um, and I didn't, I, I mean, I found that really challenging because I knew that I did want that, but I also knew I wasn't ready. And so being able to trust yourself is a really important part. And I've met widowed people who decide 10 years after their person dies, that that's the right time for them. I've met people who say never, ever, ever, and they mean never, ever, ever, because that's what they need. That's great. There is no right way to do it. Um, for me, about three years after Phil died, uh, I met someone online and um, and there was a moment of like, huh, I can really see this being something. And then having to like that, having that conversation with myself, like, oh, but am I, am I ready for that? I don't know if I'm ready for that. And, and being willing to just sort of test it. And so um, that thought of maybe this could be really something has led to a 13 year marriage. So it turned out that it was something. That's awesome. So glad. Yeah. So Jill, you kind of got set up the second time. So maybe tell us, <laughs> maybe tell us a little bit about your experience. Uh, you know, I mean, how did you get through that? Uh, you know, Michelle talked about that grief kind of fog and kind of interfering with your feelings. Kind of maybe talk about how you, you know, what are some things that you did to make sure that you were ready for another relationship? You know, I, I refer to a spectrum between Jill and Betty White for when one should date. <laughs> um, because she never did and adopted all the dogs. Um, and I did, um, pretty closely, but, um, what happened for me was I had spent so much time grieving before Linda died and before Casper died, Linda, we were told twice that she was going to die first with breast cancer. She was given three months to live and she lived 10 and then pulmonary fibrosis. We were told five and she got three. So we went through a long time and we did a lot of talking. And so um, 
I had started to prepare myself for being a widow before I was a widow. And that will probably ring true for others who have been in that position. And likewise with Casper with Louis body, there was a lot of time getting ready because that's such a terrifically awful disease, especially early onset. And with early onset dementia, it's five years or less and it's absolutely nuts. Um, but like Michelle, there's that, I don't know how I'm even gonna do this. I, I know that this is what Linda wanted and it feels right to me. And those two were very similar. So it felt sort of like, you know, comfort zone for me, but there's a book called Getting Naked Again. And I just love the title because there's that whole, how do you, you've been married to someone for how long and how do you do this again? How, how do you relax that much? How do you let yourself in? With my second, with my third wife, um, she was actually the mortician who took care of both of my other wives. So I also knew her already. I keep my people close, let me just say. Um, and so everybody knew everybody. And again, there was that, there was a lot more dating time and there was more get to know you time, but we knew each other even before Casper died. But there's still that you need someone who can allow you to grieve even while you are loving them and even while they are loving you. And that's a special person because as widows and widowers, there will be moments where we grieve for the rest of our lives um, or miss them for the rest of our lives. And there needs to be respect for that, but there also needs to be the ability to engage with life again with your new person. With Stacy, it's been special because she was like, now we're going to do some things. We're gonna, so now it turned into, we got to find all the weird art fairs and go to them. And so we flew to New Mexico to go to this international art fair and we need to go. Um, she wants to metal detect. And so we, we go metal detecting and I'm terrible at metal detecting, but I go all hung and cheer, right? Um, it's that kind of thing. It, it's making space, but making space for who used to be there. And then on some days she'll say, you probably should go to the cemetery today. And you need that kind of person. Love that. And, uh, and I love the kind of, you know, the thing that you both talked about is kind of, it sounds like, you know, you just kind of trusted your, your instincts there, you know, you're able to kind of go through and just kind of say, Hey, there might be something here, right? You're able to kind of, kind of do that. And I think that's something that a lot of widowed people have a hard time doing is trusting that it, you know, is, is learning to trust that, that gut again, and understanding that, you know, that yes, you can love a second time around, but it's, it's, it's learning to trust that gut and that feeling that yes, this is right. And being able to have a sense of humor, number one on the target. You, you got to have a sense of humor while you're getting through all of this. Oh, oh yeah, Jill, and you do. <laughs> I have to say, these women are remarkable. I mean, Michelle's story of starting up Soaring Spirits is beyond the beyond, doing it on her credit card for her first conference. I mean, really. It's incredible. And Abel, you, if you want a, a book that will blow your mind is Room for Two. And that's his story. And it is a profound story because he not only lost a wife, he lost a child. So thank you so much for moderating this, Abel. I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am gonna live on. We laugh, we cry and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.